everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and around the world on the Exxon Broadcast Network and our fine family of broadcast affiliates, satellite provider, uh, programming providers, uh, right around the world. Worldwide, toll free, 1-800-610-7035. My email address is exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And our main website, where you can listen to the Exxon 24-7-365, Exxon Nation, we're going to be talking about the Ebola epidemic. And um, we're not going to ask our guest a question. Is uh, the Ebola a curse from God? Well, our guest this hour is Jay Milbrandt. He has many months of boots-on-the-ground experience in Africa as a human rights lawyer and former head director of Global Justice Program at Pepperdine University. While in Africa, Jay also conducted hundreds of hours of research for his new book on Dr. David Livingston, one of the first explorers to bring modern science and medicine to Africa, during his quest for the source of the Nile. Driven by his deeply held Christian's belief, Livingston was also very instrumental in ending the slave trade in Africa. Now, for more information on our guest this hour, www.jmilbrandt.com. He also has a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash jmilbrandt. And you can follow him on Twitter at jmilbrandt. And Jay, welcome to the Exxon. Great having you here with us. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me tonight. Uh, Jay, um, I don't think there's a person on earth who hasn't heard about the Ebola outbreak in in Africa, mind you, two of the countries, two of the three countries, now have been Ebola-free for more than forty-two days. Um, is the Ebola a curse from God? Well, we certainly have had people who believe so. Mm-hmm. Uh, this summer, we had a group of Christian leaders who gathered in Liberia to declare that uh, God is angry with Liberia, and it hasn't just been Christians. We also had a Muslim cleric who called it God's punishment that God was angry about corruption and, and immorality. Well, now, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a scientist, mm-hmm. but I do know there are some practical concerns with this, uh, especially where theodicy is trumping public health. So, what was it like in Africa when you were there? Well, I've been there several times. You know, there's, there's definitely uh, variations to, to Africa. There is uh, the, the village level, and mm-hmm. a lot of this, crisis is taking place at the village level, and that's, uh, you know, you have information that's sporadic, you have very a very spiritual uh, environment where witch doctors and um, various uh, different groups can play very influential roles in the area, and then you have very modern Africa that's, that feels a lot like uh, uh, America and parts of Europe, so it's, it's diverse. Wow. 
Um, tell us the inspiration for writing your book, The Daring Heart of Dr. I'm sorry, The Daring, the Daring Heart of David Livingston, Exile, African Slavery, and the Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. Well, Dr. Livingstone is a name that um, many of us recognize. Mm-hmm. We, we know that phrase, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Right. It's just part of culture. And it is. That was this famous meeting where um, uh, American journalists found Dr. Livingstone was lost in remote Africa. And uh, I, um, I knew this little nugget of history, and I was actually in Africa. I went over and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and wow. wanted to read, this, read a book about uh, the original explorations of Africa it felt so similar to what I imagined it to be like. And so uh, I, I knew the Livingston name, went, looked mm-hmm. for a biography on him, and saw this uh, nugget about the slave trade being important to him, that he wanted to to end it. And so I wanted to read more about that specifically, and uh, went out for a, to look for a book on that and couldn't find it, and but found that Livingston was very passionate about it. And um, we've, we, history is focused on Stanley trying to find Livingston, but they don't ask the question of, why? Why was Livingstone lost in Africa? And the answer is that he he was there trying to find it, trying to end the slave trade. And to me, that was the real story. That is a big story, and that's a story that still lives today with the slave trade, not only in Africa, but in other parts of the world as well. Stand by, Jay. You and I have to take a commercial break. We'll be back in two minutes. Exxon Nation, our guest this hour is Jay Milbrandt. He's the author of The Daring Heart of David Livingstone, Exile, African Slavery, and Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. And uh, the book is available at Amazon.com. For more information on Jay, his website is jmilbrandt.com. He's on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash jmilbrandt. And you can follow Jay on Twitter at jmilbrandt. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue this hour talking about, well, everything from David Livingstone to the darkest areas of Africa. Here, this hour in the Exxon. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Jay Milbrandt is our guest. He is the author of The Daring Heart of of David Livingstone, Exile, African Slavery, and the Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. It's available on Amazon.com. And uh, CDC Director Thomas Frieden said last week that the Ebola outbreak is the biggest world health crisis since HIV-AIDS, while U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services Sylvia Burwell said the nation is frightened and people are frightened of this disease. That fear has reached a fever pitch in West Africa. At a recent meeting in Liberia, more than 100 Christian leaders, uh, the country is roughly about 85% Christian, declared that God was angry and the deadly Ebola outbreak is a plague. They called for prayers to seek God's forgiveness for sins including corruption and immoral acts such as homosexuality. In outlying tribal communities, the spread of Ebola is leaving hundreds of children orphaned, and a number of them are reportedly marginalized due to the fear of witchcraft and black magic. There's a strong belief in witchcraft uh, that Ebola is 
contracted through a curse, or in some cases, that is a white man's fabrication, said Jamie Bedson, charity uh, Restless Development Sierra Leone's country director, according to the Financial Times. So, a curse, witchcraft, religion, or just a virus that has gone gone wild, rampant, because of the living conditions. My guest this hour is Jay Milbrandt. And uh, Jay, in your opinion, what is the reason for Ebola? You've been over there many times. I don't believe it's a curse. I don't believe it's a plague. I don't believe it's witchcraft. In my humble opinion, and I'm no expert, I would say that the poor living conditions have a lot to do with it. Well, I think you're right. I'm not a theologian or a scientist. Uh, I can tell you that uh, at the village level, it's certainly, uh, certainly things are very different. And, um, you know, when we talk about these issues with uh, the religious leaders speaking up about it, with, uh, with witchcraft, uh, the, the concern is that, um, that there's misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation being shared. Uh, when you have um, religious leaders who recommend um, three days of fasting and prayer was one of the recommendations. And that's a fine recommendation. It's a great recommendation for the nation. But where the, the concern is that when people uh, hear that, they interpret that as, that's the solution. That's what I have to do, and I'm immune from it. Uh, that's, that's the information gap. And there's a lot of this misinformation is what's continuing to allow the, um, the virus to spread. Jay, why is... Are there certain parts of Africa that are so poor that are, that apparently, from what I can see, are being neglected by humanity? Why is this happening? Well, one reason is that's very remote. It's hard to get to. It's uh, they're not easy to operate in, and even these villages have turned away mm. some of the healthcare workers, which you know, not surprising when you come in in, in these these suits uh, that sort of look like. You know, you're from a different planet, right. and um, you're going in and telling them that, that there's this crisis, and they don't really, they don't believe it, they don't really trust you. Uh, you know, they're being told different things by um, by their village leaders, and so it's a different, it's a different world, and they they want to, in some ways, and they you know they want to explain what's happening, and. Um, it's very spiritual, and so looking toward uh, you know, witch doctors and, and religious leaders who are uh, prominent at the village level yeah. and um, are often controlling the discussion and controlling the information on public health. It seems that these villages are somewhat back into the early ages of, of the development of society. And is one of the problems, Jay, that we're trying to communicate with these villagers and, and talk to them in a language that is just way beyond their sociological standing at the time? Well, I think in part. I mean, I, I, you know, I think they, they certainly are, are extremely intelligent, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't grow up in, in, uh, in schools that have microscopes. Right. Um, and I think we take it for granted the, uh, the the sort of understanding of the world that we we have just from the way we're educated, mm-hmm. the access we have to uh, things like microscopes. So under being able to realize there are there are uh, 
things, viruses that we can't see that are being transmitted person to person. And, you know, it's even hard, I think, for us, those who have been educated in this thing, to wrap our head around yeah. it. That's certainly why we're having panic in uh, North America. Um, and it's even harder at the village level where this hasn't really been understood or explained. Let's talk about your book, Dr. Livingstone, Slavery. As I understand it, slavery is on the increase, not only from African countries. In fact, look at the the girls that were taken. Look what ISIS is doing in northern Africa and the Middle East, uh, but also other parts of the world. So tell me about Dr. Livingstone and his fight for freeing slavery and what is the uh, what's the word that uh, that's uh, that you used in your title the publicity stunt that saved millions mm-hmm. well we certainly are seeing a new world of of slavery in mm-hmm. some ways uh, livingstone was in a different era of it. I mean, he he saw the end of the transatlantic slave trade where america and britain were shipping slaves across the atlantic to the uh, uh, to work in cotton fields and sugarcane fields. And then um, what he experienced there is that it shifted to something that looks a little bit more like what we see today, but a slavery that, was, that, that moved to the east coast of Africa, where um, uh, the, the slaves were taken up through the Arab Peninsula, and, and Europe wasn't involved, and America wasn't involved. And uh, he saw this and wanted to... to bring an end to it. You know, he saw uh, this as being one of the, the most important humanitarian and public um, crises of his day. And uh, for Livingstone, it was, how do we enforce justice? Um, they had, in some cases, even good law in mm-hmm. place, maritime law that would prevent the transport of slaves, but no one was enforcing it. And how do you get the British government or the American government, foreign governments who have no direct involvement in this slavery trade, how do you get them to act? How do you get them to intervene? And this is a question that we have today, not just in slavery, and certainly have that. You know, right now it's the epicenter of a lot of human trafficking is in Southeast Asia. Uh, we're seeing growth in um, Arab peninsulas and places. And we don't... Western countries like um, the United States and Canada, Britain, we don't have involvement in it. Should we be involved is the question. Should we intervene? Should we intervene in Syria? Should we intervene in these different, different places that we, uh, where we haven't caused the humanitarian crisis? What's your opinion? Should we? <laughs> well, I think... Uh, you know, Livingstone, I think, would argue, and he certainly did argue in terms of, of slavery, that, mm-hmm. that it was um, necessary. And uh, um, I, I think one of the distinctions is that he, he aptly believed that the British government could bring about the end of the slave trade. They could blockade the, uh, the ports and um, bring it about. I think if at living somewhere, he would say, if we have the ability to do it, and he would, he was a doctor, he would say the, the anecdote, if we have the anecdote to solve this, we should intervene. I think the question for us uh, is whether we have the anecdote. And uh, you know, certainly what we've seen in 
Iraq and Afghanistan, sure. maybe we use that to question that, that uh, we can certainly intervene and do things, but whether we can actually solve it is another matter. But isn't that what, isn't that what the United Nations is for? Well, the United Nations, it, uh, well, that was its intent uh, initially. It was, it was set up to, to solve disputes between nations, mm-hmm. and in some ways it's, it's changed a lot. You know, you'll see the United Nations doing peacekeeping missions within countries. They're often just solving internal disputes today. And the United Nations is really broken as far as uh, these solving global crises, and um, you have countries who don't want to send their... Um, uh, their forces to be part of the United Nations peacekeeping, and uh, it's it's even hard to manage. It's it, it'd certainly be wonderful to think that it could happen, but it, it doesn't seem like that's that system, which was intended for that purpose, was able to work. And so um, you come back to having individual countries who have to decide if they want to uh, to intervene or work together as a coalition. If the United Nations isn't working, why do we keep it around? Well, it's you know it certainly has a a legacy and an institution. I think that there are people who who question that, uh, question whether it's still um, valuable, and and there's some debate about whether it should even be in the United States. The United States isn't. Uh, we're not as interested in what the United Nations is doing mm-hmm. like we used to be. Right. Um, is it still relevant? Uh, it's not as relevant as it once was. And there may be, you know, I think if we see major countries end up pulling out of it, um, it could fade. But I think it does serve a purpose in that it, it gathers people together. There's some discussion, and the you know, the annual meetings uh, that they have are still a an important, an important gathering. And if nothing else, it serves... Um, that place for discussion and commentary. Should it be revamped? Modernized? Probably. Probably, um, but it's not clear what that would even look like. I mean, you know, with the Security Council, for instance, it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's even hard to get action because the the veto power of certain countries is is very powerful. And... um, you want to intervene, but you have these alignments and interests. Uh, I think the big question would be who would it, who would who would revamp it? Because um, you have a lot of nations who would love to have the power of that and the ability to override and unilaterally make decisions. I guess I think you're going to have a you know you see trouble just with the with the United Nations agreeing on things in the current structure. To redo the entire structure would be a very challenging task. All right, Jay, please stand by. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exonation, Jay Milbrand is our guest. He's the author of The Daring Heart of David Livingstone, Exile, African Slavery, and the Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. And we'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. I'm Rob McConnell, and welcome to the Exxon, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Today on the Exxon, contacting the dead by phone.
Can you contact the dead by phone? Thomas Edison kept his machine secret until they were patented, so little is known about what he may have planned but never completed. However, in 1941, a blueprint was found in New York for a telephone to contact the dead, and this was allegedly to have been Edison's plan. It may have well been a fraud. However, in any case, a model was made from the design, but unfortunately, it didn't work. Contacting the dead? Fact or fiction? The quest continues in VXO. Welcome back, everyone. Jill, uh, Jay Milbrandt is our guest this hour. And Jay is the author of The Daring Heart of, Doc, of David Livingstone, Exile African Slavery and the Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. For some reason, I, I want to keep saying, Jay, The Daring Heart of Dr. David Livingstone, but that's not the title, so I apologize for that. Jay's website, www.jmilbrandt.com. You can follow Jay on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash jmilbrandt. And uh, follow him on Twitter, at jmilbrandt. What was the publicity stunt that saved millions? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a great question. Uh Livingstone, we, we know the name from history. We know that he was an explorer. Mm-hmm. Some of us know he was a missionary. And we, we have him connected as an explorer roughly to the Nile River, that he had something to do with the Nile. And uh, Livingstone had, had several, um, made several expeditions. He'd become a hero. And then he, he did an expedition where he completely failed. Uh, things fell apart. And um, he really had a falling from grace. And he was trying to decide what to do next with his life. Well, there was a great geographic question that had been wondered for centuries by philosophers and geographers. Where did the Nile River begin? And people believe that it were great fountains. Uh, there were all these theories. So Livingstone decided, well, he, he wanted to speak up about the slave trade, but no one would listen to him anymore because he had, he had lost uh, you know, his, his heroic status and he was um, sort of... Uh, sort of discarded in some ways. And so he decided if he could go back uh, to Africa and discover the sources of the Nile to make that determination, to answer the most pressing geographic riddle in history, that he would come back to Europe as the expert, the hero uh, for Africa. And he would be... Uh, able to speak about the slave trade, and people would listen and and take his uh, take his advice and his admonition to end it. And so, his quest for the Nile. Uh, many many historians have um, painted him as an explorer who wanted to find it, find the source of the Nile for his own uh, his own self purpose and to to build a reputation. And that's false. He wanted to do it to to uh, end the slave trade. To, it was a publicity stunt to, to be able to speak to the world about this awful evil that he was seeing. Did it work? <laughs> well, that's part of the story that, uh, that, that, that people have to read. Uh, and ultimately, um, well, you know, even today, he was partially right on some of the theories. He never found it, though. No way. Uh, he, never, he never answered the riddle. He actually passed away in the jungle um, 
before he could get there, before he could reach what he thought was was the Nile. Uh, and, and coincidentally, even today, um, we have geographers who still argue about where the source is, and they keep extending the source of the Nile. Uh, and they keep t- debating whether it's the Amazon or the Nile that's the longest river in the world. And they, by inches and feet, they, uh, they go back and forth between those two titles. But Livingston never found it. He passed away. And, um, but he, his letters that he was writing, his admonitions to the world, made it out. And he never knew it, but his letters were published the world over and ended up um, making the difference that brought about the end of the slave trade. And um, 36 days after his death, slavery was legally ended throughout Africa. And it was a legacy he would never know. He died believing he was a failure, but uh, yet accomplished uh, so much and ended this this horrific tragedy and um, a part of his legacy he would never see. During the research of your book, were there any... Anything, any any findings that you made that just blew you away? Well, there were so many things. And, and I think for me it was going through a lot of these newspapers and old journals that uh, people have rarely seen. And mm. Biographers have, have painted him in the last few decades uh, in a very negative light. And so that was even the approach when I wrote this. I thought I was going to be very critical of him, and, and I tried to be judicious, but I came out admiring him, and you see in his personal letters, you see a lot of uh, a, a different, you know, different story, and his journals and things are published and edited by people, by himself and by other people, but you, you kind of get to the truth in a lot of his journals, and so the publicity stunt mm-hmm. was one of those things, because I, I thought the Nile was, um, and even through most of my research, I felt like it was... Uh, you know, him trying to regain that heroic position he once held. But then you find, I came across these letters where he was writing to friends, where he was admitting that the real purposes were for ending the slave trade. And I think you get to the truth of what he, um, what he intended. Some of the other things that were interesting is that there's actually continued research on Livingstone and his letters. He, um, he would, when he was lost in the jungle, he would actually, he ran out of writing material. So he right. would make inks out of nuts, things he could grind up. And uh, he would write, and then that, those letters would, would fade or wash, wash off if they got wet. And so he would just reuse it, reuse the same piece of paper. And so scientists are doing spectral imaging, x-ray imaging on his letters and finding several different layers of letters that are invisible that are written uh, by him on the same piece of paper. And so we, 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 there are continued things that are coming out that we learn about him and learn about his intentions. How many people were actually brought over from Africa as slaves? Well, hundreds of thousands. Uh, we don't know a total number. And, um, you know, we, we have, we, we make some estimates and, uh, in this book, I tried to, I tried to follow what were the rough estimates of, uh, of the slave trade. And it was Livingstone and his colleagues estimated that, um, 
you know, at the height of the, this is just the East African right. trade. There was a, a trade that had hundreds of thousands and um, perhaps millions uh, that, that came out of West Africa in the transatlantic trade. But they estimated at least more than 600,000 had, um, had been, and, and now that's just who came, uh, who was sold through the slave markets and were counted. Livingston estimated that there were two to three times as many who never made it to the coast because he would just watch as these slave traders, you know, they, they were so brutal that if someone was, and, and people were so plentiful as a resource, that if somebody was lagging behind, it was easier on the slave traders to just kill them there than to take them out and sell them because they could just acquire someone else along the way. And so it became a, uh, an incredibly brutal trade, in part, part because they had to walk for months across Africa to get to the coast. Um, and so no one knows, no one ever will know how many victims there were of it, but we, we certainly have, uh, if we were to make um, rough estimates of the number that, that passed away, then we're probably in the millions. My good Lord. I, I often wonder what kind of people would actually hire or buy these people you know how does how does one person buy another person and, and make them into a slave mm. you know, it just... I, I can't comprehend it either uh, certainly it became for whatever reason it became a, a culturally okay practice in certain groups and I think as a culture people just had it aside we're going to turn away from this and look. And what, 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 why people determined to do that initially, it's impossible to say. But uh, certainly, you know, the, the traders and the people who were buying and selling did horrific things that seem almost inhuman, and you wonder how that could even be. Uh, but we continue to see yeah. it today. And I've, I've met uh, even modern-day um, uh modern-day slave owners and slaves and uh, in places like Burma and Thailand, and it still happens. And they, there are people who still sell their children into this. And you wonder how it's possible, but uh, uh, it happens. What, what it takes for people to separate themselves from their humanity um, is incomprehensible. It is. It truly is. And to think that it even goes on today, it makes, you know, it... Once again, I just can't understand it. How can society as a whole allow this to keep happening? Is it because there is no enforcement? Well, uh, that, that's my interpretation. I mean, in many countries, most countries across the world, we have great laws in place. Easy for legislators to write good laws. Yeah, it's hard to get police. To enforce it, and I think that there's this system that sort of gets out of control, where you don't have uh, you 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 have police who, are, who become corrupt. They're not paid enough, mm-hmm. so they start taking bribes, and then um, these practices get encouraged. Uh, you know, there's certainly there are. Um, you know, there are predators and pedophiles and, and people who will uh, who are out there who will want to try to buy services. And so uh, you bribe a police officer who bribes somebody else. 
eventually the system gets out of control and it's just lawless. And so uh, you know, my sense in, in being in a lot of these places is that the problem comes down to that there's not an, an, a justice system. There's no um, mechanism for enforcing yeah. law and or uh, um even though we can sort of legislate this, it spirals out of control and it takes a while to rein it in. You know, something I've never understood, maybe you can help me understand this uh, as, as being a, a person who is involved in the enforcement of laws and, and the, you know, the protection of people. Why is it that the armies of the world cannot be brought in as peace officers to help fight many of these problems that current law enforcement just do not have the resources to? Well, that's a great point. Uh, I, I, it's hard to say on uh, the, a country-by-country level how they want to use them. And um, we have seen that in certain places. And Mexico has tried to do that. And I think in part mm-hmm. effectively, um, there, there are certainly some places along the California border where it's gotten better, where the police, uh, the police level, they couldn't handle the situation. Right. They brought in a, a highly trained force that is... Um, doesn't have the layers of corruption that local police can have. Now, in a lot of these countries, look at places like um, uh, Cambodia. Uh, it's not; it, they're not really large enough countries that there's a a, a, a huge standing army. Um, and you know whether they can can be free from corruption and things like police force are are not always clear whether they even have the resources mm-hmm. to do it. But it seems like there may be better position in some cases to do uh, to enforce some of these things than the local police are, which which um which are often often corrupted. You know, another example that I'd like to to bring to to light is the current crisis between the southern U.S. border and Mexico. You know the 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 thousands of people that are crossing because I'm not talking crossing legally, by the way. The people who are crossing illegally because they know that the resources of law enforcement in that area are strained. So if we've got members of the military that are available, members of the Marines, the Army, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, whoever. Why can't we just use them to supplement law enforcement? Well, I don't have a whole lot of experience now that I've been down there a few times and, and I don't know all the uh, uh, the resource right. issues uh, on that border area. Um, but certainly it is, uh, it, it's a tense place. Yeah. Um, I have been down there uh, uh, half a dozen times. I've done things building homes and it, it's, it's frightening. It's frightening. Um, it's gotten a little bit better, but uh, I lived in California for a while and we'd have projects down there, and uh, you know, we, we watched the situation carefully, and uh, you know, you you're not um, not so sure about the, the the law enforcement situation as uh, uh, one that you can trust, and so uh, there there may be better approaches to this, and um, uh, better resourced groups, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps our military who can who can step in and fill the gap. Jay, you and I have to take our final break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Uh, but I do want to thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations on your book. And um, thank you. it's 
It's been a great hour so far. Exo Nation, Jay Milbrandt is our guest this hour. www.jmilbrandt.com. That's J-A-Y-M-I-L-B-R-A-N-T.com. He's on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jmilbrandt. And you can follow him on Twitter at jmilbrandt. He's the author of The Daring Heart of David Livingstone, Exile, African Slavery, and the Publicity Stunt, that saved millions, and we'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, you can also listen. You can always listen to the Exxon twenty four seven three sixty five at www dot dot com or by your phone two one three four zero one zero zero eight zero. Jay and I will be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Back everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Jay Milbrandt is my special guest this hour. His website is www.jaymilbrandt.com. That's jmilbrandt.com. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash jmilbrandt. And you can follow Jay on Twitter at Jay Milbrandt. Jay is the author of The Daring Heart of David Livingstone, Exile, African Slavery, and the Publicity Stunt That Saved Millions. First of all, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a great hour with you. Uh, What was it that finally brought the slave trade to an end? Well, ultimately, it was the... uh the will of the people. Uh, Livingstone had advocated for the end of the slave trade. His letters eventually uh, encouraged the nation to speak up about it, to rise up and really enforce their, the British government mm-hmm. to intervene. And the British government sent down um, ships to blockade uh, the harbors where the, uh, where the slave traders were, were sending their slaves out. And then uh, uh, they would... They would you know, empty the ships and burn them. They found them. Uh, then they, then the British government went on land and actually took the fight wow. to the um, dens of the slavers where they were uh, uh, and arrest those who were enslaving people and uh, bring them to justice publicly. So it was a, a lot of people involved, but it was really the advocacy of a nation that um, brought it about. How much, were, how much would a slave cost back then? I mean, it was, uh, Livingstone would cite some of the, the, the amounts that were paid in the market, and it would be, uh, it would be pennies or dollars for, uh, for someone, especially a child. Oh, it was almost nothing. I mean, they were one of the lowest-priced commodities of the day. What do you think Livingstone would say today with the, the slave trade that is still, still in play? Well, I think he'd certainly be concerned about it and that he would feel, uh, much as he said, that uh, in the day he called it the open sore of the world. And mm-hmm. I think he would still see this as the open sore of the world that needs healing. Uh, I think he would 
want to encourage the enforcement of um, laws around the world and that uh, um, the, slave, the slave trade should be ended and that it could be ended. And I think his story is a modern analog for what we see today and that the same principles of uh, justice and how he advocated and um, created justice systems uh, for these things to be um, to be eradicated are are modern re- modernly relevant. You know, Jay, it almost seems that we do more to protect endangered species of animals than we do to protect certain uh, certain areas where people are concerned that are being taken and trafficked around the world for slavery. Well, there's certainly a lot of things to be concerned of, yeah. about, whether it's the environment or um, animal rights, but this is one that uh, human trafficking and modern-day slavery, an issue that needs more attention, needs more resources. And you know, we put a lot of resources as a government, the United States government puts a lot of resources into um, you know, providing food aid, uh, aid of various kinds mm-hmm. to... Uh, um, uh, around the world, and we don't put historically much r- financial resource into justice. Yeah, that's true. And that's one thing that we're that we're missing. And um, whether it's police enforcement hey, Jay, or law, courts of law. Jay, we've got to say so long on. for tonight, but I want to thank you so much for joining us. Continued success. I love what you're doing, and I'd love to have you back on in the future. Take care of yourself, Jay. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Exxon Nation, don't go away. Mm-hmm. 